Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. I invite you to turn in the scriptures now to James chapter 1. As we continue on in this first chapter of James, James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. Hear now the word of the living God. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do give you thanks for the revelation of your will in the Holy Scriptures. We know that in them we have life, eternal life. We pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit, that we might see your truth today, and that we might believe and do. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. When we are guilty... We are quick to shift the blame to someone else. I was reminded of this a little over a week ago as I finished a 2,600-mile journey in our moving truck and came to Sunnyvale and was about to bring the truck back to the rental place and had to fill it up with diesel fuel. And I brought the truck underneath the canopy of a gas station that was about two inches too low and scraped the top of the truck. And immediately, I ended up talking with the owner of the station to work it out and had to make a number of calls and file a report. But then I noticed there was no height marking on this station because it was under construction. And surely, my thought was, I was not responsible for this act. It was supposed to be marked. As I was preparing this sermon at that that time, it came to my mind that this is how we all respond typically when we are blamed for sin, when in fact we are guilty of sin. We want to find any other direction to shift the blame. You think of our first father, Adam, who did this very thing in the garden. When God came to him after he had eaten of the forbidden fruit, And the Lord asked him what he had done. And he said, it was the woman who you gave me. She gave me of the fruit, and I ate. If you had not given me this woman, I would never have done it. Lord, it is your fault. I am not truly to blame. Well, as we consider this, uh, it's important to note how not only there are trials in our lives that come, but there are temptations that we face in the midst of those trials. Every trial gives you an opportunity to respond in sin. And that's what we're looking at now, is this morning we considered the outward trials 
that we all face in the Christian life. And tonight we look at those inward enticements to sin that come from within us in response to our trials. James affirms, no doubt, that indeed the outward trials that come in our lives are under the sovereign superintendence of God. You think of Abraham as God tested him and calling him to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. God indeed superintended this very trial in Abraham's life to show forth the true faith that was Abraham's. But what James is concerned to do here by the inspiration of the Spirit is to ensure that you do not blame God for your own sin, but in finding the depth of your own sin, you might flee to the only one who can do anything about it. And that's why we see in this text particularly two truths and a lie about God and your temptations. Two truths and a lie. And James gives us no doubt here which of these is the lie. As he begins, first of all, with this lie we find in verse 13. The lie is, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Let no one say, I'm being tempted by God. This is a falsehood even believers can fall into. If we were to rephrase this temptation and this lie, we could say, it is telling yourself that you are the victim of circumstances that God created. There's nothing you can do. All you can do is sin. You're trapped in a corner. It's God who has orchestrated everything around you such that you cannot but sin. And this lie, you may tell yourself um, in your mind, you may verbally state it. It's not often I've ever heard someone state it that bluntly, but I would venture to guess it's not so much for most of us that we blame God directly as it is indirectly in God's works of providence in our lives. You can blame other persons in your life. Adam is the example I've given already. Blame a spouse. That it's what they did that led you to respond in this sinful manner. It could be your own sickness or or aging, that you think that you cannot help because of the circumstances you're in as a result of the age and station you are in life that you sin. Could be co-workers, or could be your parents. You think if your parents just weren't so mean and hard toward you, you would not act that way. Or for parents, it's their children. So if you had better behaved children, surely you would respond in a more godly manner. You can blame persons, but you can blame circumstances as well. Whether it's the lack of money that you have at the moment, or the temptation, the ad that pops up on the computer. Lord, if you had not allowed this to happen, I would have never gone down that road. It can be your own personality, your condition. You say, Lord, if you hadn't made me the way I am, the vessel that I am, I would not act this way. But supremely, above all, you can blame God when you think in your mind, Lord, if you had brought me to Christ earlier, I would have never sinned in this way. If you had given me more grace, I would have never walked down that road. I would have never said those words or acted in that manner. You, Lord, are to blame for my own sin. 
And James says very emphatically here that this is a lie. He says, do not say when you're tempted, I'm being tempted by God. What you're saying when you say that is that God is at fault for my own temptation. The one, the only one who can help you, the only one who can save you, even from not only the guilt, but the power of your sin, he is the one to blame. And if he is the one to blame, then where else do you have to turn? You can't turn to yourself, to the world. If you can't turn to God himself, where do you have to go? You have nowhere to go. It's a lie. And the result for people is that you end up turning away from the God who loves you and will care for you, turn away from the only source of help you can have. So I ask you, as we, we look here initially at this lie, do you excuse your sin by blaming anything else? By blaming God's providence in your life, something that's outside of your control, do you tell yourself this very lie? But James does not leave us here with this lie that you're a victim of God-created circumstances. He goes on to tell us two truths about God. And it's in these two truths that he wants you and me to rest and to see that is the truth about him. And this first truth, verses 13 to 15, is that God is not the source of your sinful temptations. God is not the source of your sinful temptations. And right away we should ask, what is a temptation? Like, what is it that James means here? And I found, helpfully, a definition given by Denny Burke when he said that temptation always involves two parts. There's the trial, on the one hand, the outward trial, and then there's the, the enticement to sin. And this enticement to sin can come from the outside, or it can even come from inside of us. And the trial on the one hand is the, the sense of suffering or, or deprivation, a sense of lack of something that you don't have. And the enticement to sin is this allurement to draw you in order to satisfy that desire, that, that sense of deprivation or, or lack in a sinful manner. The enticement to sin is the allurement. It can be either from outside or inside in order to satisfy, relieve that suffering or deprivation through sin. And this is helpful to us as you consider, for instance, our Lord's own temptations. In Matthew 4, as he was there in the wilderness, tempted of the devil. He was one who knew no sin, who could not respond in sin. And yet he knew, on the one hand, the trial that had been placed in his life. He was hungry. He was lowly in low condition. He was one unbeknownst of the world, offered here by Satan, the dominion over all the earth, all over the kingdoms. There was this sense of suffering and deprivation. And then there was, furthermore, the enticement to sin from the outside, coming from the devil himself, seeking to allure him away from the purpose that he had come to save. There was an enticement that came from the outside, and yet, as we know, Hebrews 4, our Lord endured these temptations, yet without sin. There was no inward enticement or draw after those very sins. 
And so the question you would ask then is, how is God not the source of your temptations? If God is sovereign, he does all things, he does all his holy will, how is God not the source of your temptations? And this is what James goes on to tell us when he says that God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You see, there's nothing outside of God that moves him to do evil. He himself is infinitely holy, unchangeably holy. Uh, he is perfect in all of his being. There's nothing outside of him that can move him in order to do that which is evil. Christ's allurements were not from within, but without. And furthermore, we see then in the same verse, he himself tempts no one. There's nothing inside of God that moves him to do evil. You ask the question then to James, if he says this to you, he himself tempts no one, then why is it we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And what we pray in that prayer is that, Lord, that you would not bring us into those circumstances in which that we would respond in a sinful manner. Now, he can bring you, as even he did, say, Abraham, into the circumstances in which, humanly speaking, left to yourself in the power of the flesh, you're prone to fall into sin. The sin doesn't come from the Lord himself, but it comes from within in those moments of trial. We pray, Lord, lead me not into temptation. You might ask furthermore to James, well then what about Pharaoh? How is it that you hardened his heart? And how is it that this is not a temptation to him? And we see that the Lord can withdraw his grace from someone. That he can suffer a person to be tempted by their own lusts as he removes his own grace from them. And again, we pray, Lord, do not take your grace away from us. Make your face to shine upon us. Give us your peace. Make your presence to be felt and known, for we will not go without your blessing. Yet he tempts no one. He doesn't entice them to sin. It's the tempter himself, Satan, who is the one who is outwardly drawing others to sin, but God himself tempts no one. So what is the real source of your temptations? You wonder, especially even the longer you go on in the Christian life and the closer that you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you cry out, Lord, where did that thought come from? Why did this old sin reemerge from my past? Where did this come from? And he says then, in verse 14, each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. It's by his own desire. Uh, the imagery here is from fishing. If any of you have ever done any fishing, and you know what it's like to put a hook in the water, and you have a lure, and perhaps some bait on the hook, and you cast it into the water, there's, there's a lure that's meant to draw this fish. And James uses these, these words of luring and enticing to describe both the, the violence of, of the desire on the part of the person, this, this luring coming from their own fallen desires, but also the enticement, the, the beauty of seeing the, the color, uh, seeing the shape, 
that looks oh so wonderful, like it would satisfy that desire. Both the violence of desire as well as the, the enticement from the outside that the, the fisherman catches that which he seeks to trap. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You could think of Genesis 6, 5, where the Lord speaks about the hearts of all those by nature, that it was only evil continually. The Lord looked and he saw that universally there was no person, none that does good, not even one. This is the very nature of each one of us apart from Christ. He goes on and he gives the illustration here as he describes the birth cycle of sin. He says that when desire, on the one hand, has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And then sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. You see, death, as it were, is the, the grandchild of, of the desire here. Desire first gives birth to sin. Sin then gives birth, as it were, brings forth death. There's a cycle here, a direction of sin here as, as first of all, it begins with that desire after something, a certain object and it issues forth ultimately if allowed to continue to its proper conclusion to come forth in death. The question then becomes, is desire itself sin? And there are many who look at this text here and they see where James says that it's desire that conceives and gives birth then to sin. And then, well, at least I'm safe in my desires. If I'm in my own mind, in my fantasy world here, I can fantasize about sin. But as long as it doesn't issue forth in actual sins, then I'm okay. And then they can... They can sedate their own minds into thinking that they're in a better state before God than they are. As long as it stays with the desire, it hasn't conceived or given birth to sin. Well, what do you answer in response to this? What, what do you say in response to your own temptation to delude yourself in this manner? I should note that there are many, especially in the allegedly Christian world who even look at this text in order to try to justify their desire after a person of the same gender, a forbidding object in Scripture, this very verse in their literature saying, this justifies us in our desires. What do you say to them? What do you say to yourself? Well, in the book of James, it's very clear that James uses this word sin in a particular way. As the seven times when he uses this word, it's always in reference to actual sins, the committing of the sin in the body. Paul, on the other hand, often uses the word sin in the sense of the, the principle, the inward working in the heart that issues forth in actual sins. Romans 7, 17, for instance, speaks about sin that dwells in me. It's the sin nature, ultimately. It's the, the disordered desires from a fallen, rebellious nature that separates you from God that then issues forth in actual activity of sin. It's like if you think of a 
compass angle when you're only one degree off. Well, it doesn't seem like you're actually that far off, but yet when you are separated from God, when you are by nature in a rebellious state from Him, and that desire itself is on a trajectory ultimately to lead to the actual sin. And James is not denying this at all. He's in fact emphasizing that the way of sin is downhill, the words of Matthew Henry. If you take a snowball, for instance, where I'm from in North Dakota, and you, you find the tallest hill, of which there aren't many, and you roll it down, and it accumulates more and more snow, this is the picture we have of sin here, the trajectory of sin. It's a spiral that keeps going down, 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 all the way into the grave. James warns, do not believe that you can start down that road without ending up in the consequences of sin. And this is what I want you to take away tonight, brothers and sisters, that you would see the trajectory of sin, that you would see the trajectory of all sin, even your very sinful nature, even the desires of your heart when they're not in conformity to Christ. You see, it ultimately leads to death, temporal death, spiritual death, eternal death, all sin, no matter how seemingly small. Psalm 1 speaks about the man who first walked in the way of the ungodly and then stood in the way of sinners and then sat in the seat of the scornful. And this is exactly the picture we have here as the person who dallies with sin in their own mind, uh, who rests in their inclinations and thinks God doesn't care. At first he walks down that alley, he goes that way. And then he stands among the mix of other sinners and finds camaraderie among them. And then he sits in the very seat as one who himself mocks those who are the righteous. This is the picture here of the trajectory of sin. And you must see the danger, the filthiness of sin, no matter how seemingly small. Every sin is of such weight that it deserves eternal damnation, even the inclination of sin. And this is why the Lord graciously gives His Spirit so that you might cut off sin at its very fountain, at its very root. You might not any longer live in sin, but live in the Spirit. And Thomas Manton said that the more bitterness you taste in sin, the more sweetness you will taste in Jesus Christ. And this ultimately is the first lesson that we have here as you, you see that the Lord backs you into a corner. You thought you were safe in your own desires. And yet he says, no, that is sin as well. That leads to death. You can turn nowhere else but to the Savior in order to not only deliver you from guilt, but from the power of sin. You must taste the bitterness of sin. See, there's no help in yourself in order that you would find that help in Jesus Christ. And this is the first truth about God, that He is not the source of your sinful temptations. They come from within. Your heart is the soil, as it were, from which the poisonous plant springs. The whole package is evil. He's not the source of your sinful temptations. But that leads us then to the second truth, which is that God is, in fact, the source of all good. God is the source 
of all good. It's not the sin that comes from God. It's, in fact, all that is good. It comes from Him. And James says, do not be deceived. It's a fact you can be deceived. Most of all, when you think you're not deceived. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. With a tender heart of a father coming to his beloved spiritual children, warning them of this and pointing them then to the God who gives every good and perfect gift. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What are these gifts that God gives? You know, you don't just plug in to this verse whatever good thing that you want or every gift that you think would be the perfect gift from God. These good and perfect gifts are contrasted here with with sin. It is contrasted with spiritual evil. And these gifts from God are spiritual goods, particularly and preeminently, even as Ephesians 1.3 says that you, if you're in Christ, are blessed in Him with every spiritual blessing. In fact, He gives His Holy Spirit the ultimate good for His people, out of which come all of the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience goodness, all of these spiritual blessings found in Christ. They're good gifts. Moses, when he asked God to show him his glory, then God said, I will cover you in the mountain. I will pass by you and I will show you my goodness. It's the goodness of God that reveals his glory in this way to us. He gives these good gifts of them could include the assurance of God's love. When you're facing a trial and tempted to respond in sin, when you know that's from the Spirit, He gives you assurance of His love. He gives you the strength and the joy to turn away from the sin. He gives you peace of conscience that no longer would you walk in guilt and in shame, but knowing that you're reconciled with God, that you have an eternal inheritance from Him. He gives you joy in the Holy Ghost, and He keeps you on that path to glory. These are good gifts, and they're perfect gifts as well. James goes on, the gifts that God gives tend to perfection. They are all aiming at that perfection ultimately in glory. One Puritan said that everything on the path of grace to glory is by gift. It's from beginning to end of the Christian life, all of it is passed to you as a gift from God. And James then goes on and points out that it's not just the gifts that you come to love. You think about if you're at your grandparents' house and they give you a gift for your birthday, you simply run away and you never say thank you. You know, it's not just the gift that you should be thankful for. You'd be thankful that it's your grandparents who gave you the gift. The giver is far greater than the gifts. And James says that these good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You see that all of the gifts that God gives are like signposts pointing down toward the one who's the giver of the gifts. He calls for you to raise your eyes from those gifts up to him who is in heaven, the Father of all lights. The one who himself 
gave light before there was a sun or a moon or stars. The one who himself in glory will be the light of the new Jerusalem where there is no more need of the sun or of the moon because the lamb himself will be the light of that place. In John, 1 John 1, we're told that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. But all that is light comes from God, whether it's your reason to see clearly the scriptures, the wisdom that he gives, whether it's holiness or happiness, all of these things that we describe with terms of light, God is these things, the father of them, the giver of them. And moreover, he's not one who changes. He's not one who was once light and goodness to our father's past, but he is the one who is eternally good and unchanging. There's no variation or shadow due to change. If you ever fly on an airplane up above the clouds on a stormy day when it's lightning and crashing thunder down below, and you go up above, you see the sun is still shining. It's unchanging. Whether it's on the other side of the earth or whether it's here, the sun itself does not change. And this is the image he gives of the unchanging goodness and steadfast mercy of the Lord. He's the father of lights. He does not change. And Thomas Manton said that the more the divine nature is in you, the more you are able to stand against temptations. You see, that's ultimately what we want from a passage like this, is to understand, Lord, how do we be more like you? We see he is the unchanging one. And the more of his unchanging light and holiness is found in you, then the more that you stand steadfast, unmovable, like that rock in the midst of the waves against temptation. He is the only source to enable you to stand against temptation or the evil day. And what James does here, as he tells you about the gifts that God gives, as he points you then to the giver of the gifts, he then gives an illustration of the greatest gift of all, as if you need any more persuasion that God is good and that he gives that which is good, then verse 18 is the pinnacle here as he talks about God's greatest gift of all. Where he says that of his own will, that is God's will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, what he's speaking about here is a different kind of birth. We saw the birth cycle of sin as it issues forth in death. But here, it is the will of God that brings us forth, as it were, as new creations, born again in Jesus Christ, brought forth by the word of truth, that is, the gospel of the Lord Jesus, worked in our hearts by the Holy Spirit to be the first fruits of his creatures. This language of being brought forth by the word of truth is used elsewhere as Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 4 of how I have begotten you again in Jesus Christ through the gospel. It's the gospel, the word of truth that makes you alive in Christ Jesus. It makes all of those to whom you witness by his grace alive. 1 Peter 1 says similarly that you are born again by the word of of God, the word of truth which we preach. And this is by the will of God, his good and gracious will, 
you ascend from your own new birth to see that it was eternally the will of God that desired for you to be lifted out of your sinning misery, to be justified, adopted, sanctified in Christ Jesus, to be a new creation. It's originating in the will of God. It issues forth in the new birth. And then, ultimately, its goal is that you would be the first fruit of his creatures. And this language of the first fruits, you, we use, especially about the Old Testament, we see much of this language of the first fruits, that is, the early crop of the harvest that was brought in to the temple as an offering to the Lord. This language of first fruits, common, we would use it even of our own gardens. If you have tomato plants, for instance, your first fruits, you, you make that great meal when you celebrate summer as that first fruits comes. He says here that Christians are first fruits of creation. And this language should remind you of 1 Corinthians 15. It speaks about Christ himself as the first fruits of his people. Now, he himself rose as the, the first fruits of all those who are in him. His resurrection was not the end of the story, but it pointing toward the resurrection of all of his people. Christ, in fact, himself as the first fruits of Christians, Christians here as the first fruits of the new creation. We know that the whole creation groans and travails, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. All of creation, all of California, of the United States of America, the entire world, the creation that God made very good, lying in ruins, and yet we, first fruits of that new creation that God will bring forth at the end of time, we're already seeing, as it were, the new creation breaking into our reality as we know something of that new life now, and we anticipate that someday will be culminated in a whole restored creation. No more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more trials, no more temptations, forever with the Lord. You rejoice in that. You are new creations. You are the, the sign of what God is doing if you are founding him, if you have been brought forth by the word of truth, if you have had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and are united to him and know his work in your life, you're the first fruits of creation. You see, God is the source of all good. When you're tempted to think or to blame him, for your own sinful responses. No, brothers and sisters, the answer is to first see the depth of the sin of your own heart, then to see the goodness of God in sending forth Christ, the greatest gift of all, and giving you new birth and promising new creation. And then, having seen your sin, you turn to him, the only redeemer, and you live as becomes a first fruits of creation. My question to you is, what will you do when you next realize your guilt of sin? Realize Christ did not shift the blame. 
Think about our Savior as He Himself, the one who bore no guilt, the one who Himself could have shifted the blame and said, not guilty. These, all the world, guilty. It is their sin they must bear. He is the one, we're told, who knew no sin that became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, Christ did not shift the blame, even though He was the one person of all who could shift the blame elsewhere. But rather than arguing His blamelessness, He went as the sheep went to its shearers, and He took that which is ours. Christ did not shift the blame. You see, God is not the author of sin. There's no darkness in Him at all. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. What you are called to is to accept responsibility for your sin, to stop shifting the blame anywhere else to anything of God's providence or His person. See your sin for what it is. You don't need to pretend with God. But recognizing in Him His goodness in our Lord Jesus Christ, you turn from your sin to Him, even for daily sins that you find yourself in. You go to Him for grace, and you pray, Lord, make me to live as I truly am, the first fruits of the new creation. By His grace, He will grant you all that you need to go from grace to glory. May He add His blessing to these words. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we do give you thanks and praise for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that though we are the guilty ones, that he took our sin and guilt upon him, that it is removed as far away as the east is from the west. We pray, Lord, tonight, if there is anyone who does not truly know you or rest in you, that you would give them that joy of the Lord in knowing true salvation to enter into your new creation. And we pray, O oh Lord, earnestly as we anticipate the fullness of that day, that you would hasten your coming, for we know that you are good and your mercy endures forever. And great is your faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we could be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place. Uh, 
through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name.